My name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Hey you, welcome to episode 155 of Legally Clueless. Thank you so much for rocking with this podcast. If this is your first time listening, join our fuzzy corner of the internet on Instagram. We're at Legally Clueless Podcast. And you can also check out our, oh my God, I keep forgetting the Facebook page. <laughs> our Facebook page, Jamini. It's Legally Clueless. There's links to both of these pages in the show notes. And also you can check out our YouTube where you get to watch our video series. There's two full seasons out that are fantastic. I'm biased, but uh, it is the truth. And you can also watch our tour series as well. By the way, just a bit of a teaser. There is another tour series episode that's going to be coming really soon. But link to our YouTube is in the show notes. If you're listening on a platform without show notes, just search Legally Clueless on YouTube and you will find us. Now that you know your way around here, this is what you can expect in this episode. So I was first intrigued by animation when I was around four years old. Um, I tried to draw my dolls, but I used to love drawing from like the cartoons I used to watch. Actually, the comment I'd often get is, why are these people all white? Why are they all thin? Why do they look nothing like you? I thought it was made clear that I didn't have a place in the screen because they never, it never represented me. So I just this is what cartoons did and this is how they looked, not like me ever. So for me, school was in a few different places. So we used to bounce between Scotland, Ireland and Nairobi. And I found that no matter which classroom I was in, I was always either the wrong size, the wrong color. For me, weight, I used to weigh much more. I found that because of how I looked, I was excluded from so many categories and that was painful. Or when it's time to buy school uniform and school uniforms don't fit, that's always that was always very humiliating. Like there were so many crushing like moments where like you feel like the world is not designed for you. That's Nadia, who happens to be one of Africa's top animators. Like, she is a black African woman who's just kicking ass. And her story is coming up a little later in this episode. And I really love it. And I've been dying to share it with you for reasons that I'll explain later. However, Song of the Week is a classic, but it's a song that I really love. I listen to it when I'm sad. I listen to it when I'm happy. I listen to it when I want to feel calm. It does so many things to me and I only just realized that this week and made a mental note that, hey, I have to share that with you. So the song is Papa Wemba's Raylon. Even though when I was younger, I used to sing Rain On. (laughs) I don't know if I said it was like a rain chant. (laughs) Wishing for rain, rain on. Anyway, check out the song in case you don't know it. If you do, chances are you probably haven't listened to it in a minute. So yeah, it's a beautiful song. And I've put a link to it in the show notes. So I hope you are surrounded by love, surrounded by peace, surrounded by grace, wherever you are. Yeah, I think I'm beginning to understand how life can be so hectic. I feel like I'm juggling a lot of work and career stuff. And at the same time, a lot of personal stuff. So it's just like, what the adulting is on a whole other level it's so much that in my head i'm just like how did i blink and it's already march like what is going on (laughs) i think it's just like i have quite a bit on my plate so first thing that i will share is a that i'm recording this on a thursday night which is not normal if you're day one of this podcast you know i do my production on sundays so the reason I'm doing this is because I'm traveling to Dubai tomorrow. And I'm not going to do the thing that I did in Zimbabwe, which is like 
covering my head with a blanket in the hotel room recording. No, I don't want to do that to you. I want you to have good quality audio. <laughs> so I decided to change my production days. But I'm going to Dubai to perform poetry. Like, how wild is that? I write poetry. I think that's even how I got into media because I used to have an open mic night, which happened because I used to perform poetry. I've been writing since I was in high school which is like when I was 12 years old. Then last year, I get a call from the African Union. <laughs> it's just wild even saying it. I'm just like, what is this? Who I've interacted with the African Union, but in a capacity of like youth programs, women's programs, etc. But one person there knows I'm a poet. And then I started sharing a lot more of my poetry on my website and on my social media. And so they reached out because they are part of the Dubai Expo and we're going to be celebrating, you know, Africa Day and they wanted poetry performed. So, hey, <laughs> so I'm going to be performing alongside a guy from Ghana. I'm really nervous because we haven't really been able to merge our pieces. All of this has felt very rushed. So I don't feel like I've memorized my piece enough. But I'm hoping that on the flight tomorrow, the entire Saturday will parts of Saturday I can get a lot of practice in maybe I'm also just freaking out but super excited about it though super excited and super proud in the next episode I'll tell you all about my Dubai escapades I've never been to Dubai other than being on transit so I'm trying to have an open mind we did some research and I was just like okay out of respect for countries, I'm just going to leave my tiny shots behind. Although, you know, sometimes articles can be like over dramatic and sensationalize things, but you also don't want to go around disrespecting people's culture. So that's been interesting. <laughs> Trying to pack my clothes. Though my clothes are all tiny. Anyway, um, <laughs> so that's one. That's one thing I'm super excited about. And then the other thing is that we're launching the book that I co authored on Thursday, the 3rd of March and you are invited by the way if you are in Nairobi the link is in my show notes or just go to ticketsasa.com and get yourself a ticket tickets are 3,000 bob when they come with a copy of the book that I'm actually looking at right now and I'm just so excited Lanji and I wrote this book in case you don't know it's called Our Broken Silence and it's centered around sexual violence and it has stories from survivors, from people in different support systems. So like nurses, lawyers, family members of survivors. We have people from the queer community sharing their stories. Like it's so detailed. And of course, we've shared our stories like we've gotten each a chapter and then the other stories come in. The foreword that is so, so powerful was done by the Honorable Chief Justice Martha Kome, who's the 15th Chief Justice in Kenya. Uh, I'm so excited. And she's the president of the Supreme Court of Kenya. Like, I'm just... Uh, and she's going to be our guest of honor at the launch, which is a big thing because she's super busy. So even getting her to lockdown time... I wish you knew how excited I am. Like, I'm super excited. So I decided, okay, before I tell you what I decided, you can go to ticketsasa.com to get your tickets to the launch. If you cannot make it to the launch and you're not in Kenya, the book is available on Amazon. Check out the show notes. I've put a link to, to it there. If you're in Kenya, but you cannot make it to the launch, in next week's episode, I will share details on how you can buy yourself a copy of this wonderful book. But so what I figured is I could read you a bit from one of my entries in the book. Oh, And this one is like, 
Okay, you know what? Let me not give you like a preamble. Let's just get into it, Sindio. Okay, dates. I want to love my body again. Dear diary, two years ago, he said that I wasn't attractive enough to sleep with willingly, let alone rape. He said it on a platform that has millions of people. He hung my shame-ridden body for all to see, for all to ridicule. I had to come out and defend survivors. For years, I unknowingly held a little of their voices in mind. So when I chose silence, I too was stifling them. I had to come out and defend a body I had just started loving again. My body. I can't remember a time before I was raped that I consciously loved my body. It wasn't that I hated it then, I just didn't consciously think about it. Save for the moments in primary that I felt a bit out of place for being so much taller than the other kids. I don't remember hating my body when I developed eczema and had to carry on my skin black spots that my skin condition would lovingly gift me. I never hated my body before I got raped. I had never been intimate with anyone by the time I got raped, even though I was in some sort of a relationship. It was a long-distance relationship with my high school sweetheart. He was one of those guys you couldn't wait to introduce to your parents because he checked all the boxes. A student, a school leader, played a couple of musical instruments, was good at sports, and never missed a day of church. The latter being the reason we hadn't done it yet. We were trying out long distance because he'd gotten into a top university in another country on a scholarship. In hindsight, we were definitely in that no man's land that kills relationships. You know, the place where you stay with each other because you put in so much work into this union and you're a tad bit scared of what life without your partner would look like. Yeah, we were there, but we still spoke. We spoke on the phone before I left the house party for the club and we spoke after I got raped. One truth that I always run away from is that while other women will speak about losing their virginity, mine was stolen. That when other women speak about how quirky and below their expectations their first time was, mine was violent. That when other women giggle as they share about this, I cry. That when other women loved their bodies, I hated mine. I hid my hatred for my body behind my eczema. I told myself it was a skin condition spot that I was hiding. You see, I had spots on my legs, arms, and a bit on my neck. I wouldn't regulate my diet, the clothes I wore, or use the creams I needed to avoid the flare-ups. Part of me wanted eczema there because it was easier to hate it than admit that I hated my body. That I blamed my body for not protecting me that night. And so for years after that, I hid my body. I made sure my closet was made of long sleeves, pants and thick stockings. I gave up swimming, even though it was a sport I loved and participated in throughout my school years, but I wasn't about to wear anything that revealed the object of my hatred, my body. I doubted any relationship I got into afterwards because we're conditioned to believe that men are visual creatures, that what attracts them first is what they see, your body. And because I knew my body was not deserving of any love, I knew that any man who showed interest in me must be lying. Perhaps I was just a convenience, the girl who was there when the girl he wanted didn't want him. I once fell in love so deeply that I shared with my partner at the time about my hatred for my body. I showed him my scars. He kissed my scars. He made me feel like perhaps I had given up on my body unfairly. When that relationship ended, I couldn't help but put some blame on my body. It had failed me again. I don't remember when I got tired of hating my body, but I am thankful that I did. That prison I had built for myself was suffocating, and waiting for someone other than myself to free me was not working. All I know is one day, I woke up and I got so tired of blaming and hating myself, so I started small. By wearing sleeves that didn't reach my wrists like I usually would, I wore sleeves reaching my elbow. Then one day, I wore a sleeveless top letting my scars breathe. 
Next, I wore shorts without thick stockings underneath. I felt powerful. I felt like I had reconciled with my body. I felt beautiful again. It changed how I was in relationships. I knew they weren't with me out of pity. I started to rebuild my relationship with myself. I started to reveal the broken beauty, sensuality, sexuality, and sex. You see, my first sexual experience was rape. So for me, sex and trauma went hand in hand. I'd never viewed it as its own space or something that I could enjoy until I consciously started working on loving my body again, with the help of my therapist, of course. So in 2017, when I woke up to him ridiculing this body that I was working so hard to love again, it chipped at my progress. I almost slipped back into that prison I had made for myself. But it's a good thing that I had just started loving my body again. So that's one entry. Oh, I love it. <laughs> because it's, it's, it's such a representation of like a huge space I'm in in terms of healing. And I mean, I say this now, even though I'm currently battling a fresh wave of triggers related to experiencing rape. And it's, it's like weird external triggers, like particular smells, particular shoes, particular t-shirt colors, eyes. It's, it's a bit overwhelming. But I also understand that I have to be graceful with myself because healing isn't linear. So it doesn't mean I've regressed. It's just part of the process. But even just reading that, I'm like, ugh, getting so refueled. So that's part of what's in the book. And... It really mean a lot if you get a copy of this book. Perhaps you're a survivor. Perhaps you know a survivor. But also, even if you're not, it'll help you understand our stories and maybe even understand your role in this fight. If you can come to the launch, that would be great. Get your tickets at ticketsasa.com. If you can't and you're not in Kenya, the Amazon link is in our show notes. And if you are in Kenya, in next week's episode, I'm going to share the details on how you can buy yourself a copy of the book. Okay, enough about me. I'm feeling a bit awkward now that I've shared this, so I'm just going to jump right into 100 African Stories. Nadia, oof, such a powerful, powerful girl. She is one of the top animators in the country. I'll tell you what I love most about this story and why I wanted to share it with you afterwards, but it takes us from her loving to draw when she was four years old, her figuring out her identity, battling with weights through high school. She's just so deep. Even when she talks about it, it, it just makes so much sense, you know? Ultimately ends with her working with the likes of Netflix. A hundred African stories on Legally Clueless. Stories from Africa. So I was first intrigued by animation when I was around four years old. So my favorite film at the time was The Little Mermaid. I was absolutely obsessed with this movie and I would watch it over and over again. And I used to think that Ariel was this person who lived in the box. Um, but then one day my parents were like, no, it's not a person. People make this and these people are called animators. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean other people do this? Like, yeah, they're called animators. They all work together and then they draw frame by frame until it looks like she's alive. And I was like, how do I become one of these people? And thankfully, they were completely supportive from the jump. Like, so they bought me every single color pencil, every single ream of printer paper. I would draw everywhere all the time. And they nurtured it so consistently from the very beginning. Well, when I was four years old, I used to really love copying a lot. So I'd like trace on my, from my VHS tapes 
and I tried to recreate the characters I saw on the screen. Um, I tried to draw my dolls, I'd try to draw, actually not the people around me that much, that started later, but I used to love drawing from like the cartoons I used to watch. Actually, the comment I'd often get um, is, why are these people all white? Um, why are they all thin? Why? Why do they look nothing like you? And for me, I was like, I didn't even, I thought it was made clear that I didn't have a place in the screen because they never, it never represented me. So I just this is what cartoons did and this is how they looked, not like me ever. And even to getting to the journey of actually not like exploring representation of bodies like mine, not out of a dutiful thing, but out of like joy is something that I've been cultivating and something that I can say now I actually inhabit. But it took a while to get there. So when I was in primary school, um, a lot of the validation used to come from other kids who would make me want to like draw their homework. So that was always a lot of fun. And it made me feel, I guess, popular or liked or useful, which is something I didn't always feel. So for me, art was a gateway into that, into like making friendships. Yeah, and just like finding some kind of value. Later, like I found that my value was too wrapped up in it. It's like I am... And I like I I create I do draw, but I that's not who I am. It's what I do, and it's a lesson that I've been taught by the world. But I remember it's one of the nuggets my dad mentioned in passing, um, because um, he's a doctor. And then he one day he just said, "Medicine is what I do. It's not who I am." And I was like, "Oh, I just always thought like they were so intrinsically connected." Um, but no, like you actually exist outside of it. So when I was growing up, um, we used to move around a lot. So for me, school was in a few different places. So we used to bounce between Scotland, Ireland, and Nairobi. And I found that no matter which classroom I was in, I was always either the wrong size, the wrong color, like the wrong accent. <laughs> like it was never, you never quite fit, or I never quite fit anywhere automatically. And I found that drawing was like a, like a good gateway. It's like, She's a bit strange, but like she can draw for me monocots and dicots. So like, hey. <laughs> or like I remember even when I was growing up in Dublin, um, they used to have this school magazine. I drew like the cover for the school magazine and it won. So that you became not just like the black kid. <laughs> you became like the kid who could draw. So like it helped me like experiment with like masks or like identities or just like bargaining chips I could use to like, be welcomed because kids can be cruel let me not lie it could be brutal but I found like no matter where I was that was always the same navigating race as a kid like, it's very interesting because you find that ultimately it is a large question but the smaller ones are what are more important like I think there was once an incident like oh my gosh anyway so there was an incident when I was a kid and like the kids are not playing with me. This is only we're living in Ireland. And then <laughs> the kids, guys, this is too real. Anyway, we were, they were playing and then they didn't want to play with me. And I was like, oh, it's because of my skin, my sorrow. And then I asked the kid, like, do you not want to play with me because I'm black? And then they were like, no, Adiambo, it's because you're annoying. And I was just like, oh, shit, son, like my chest. And that was humbling because that that really taught me, like, ultimately, there are those larger political questions, like, is she black? But ultimately, like, we, we do the same things. And I found, like, in Ireland at the time, the most polarizing question was actually about not even Christianity, about Catholics versus Protestants. So the streets were hot, not because of racism as the central question, but because of factions in 
Christendom. And then there was Northern Ireland, there was the Republic of Ireland. So there were like other factions. So I found that curious. And then you come to Kenya and it's like, you're not black, you're Luo. So that means something else. So I used to think that everybody spoke Luo in Kenya. <laughs> and then I found out that was not true. Then I found that people can dislike you not just because you're annoying, but because your name starts with a certain letter or people handle you differently because you have a, a different class. But I found that for when you're a kid, um, that the larger questions are not as important as the small ones. So in high school, the question was different because now we'd settled back in Nairobi. So the race question wasn't really at the center. It was about, for me, weight. So um, I used to weigh much more. And then I found that, especially like as you're trying to discover what it means to be feminine or you're dealing like with like desire, I found that because of how I looked, like I was excluded from so many categories and that was painful. So that was the thing that was like the struggle question of the image question of my adolescence was like about weight, I'd say, not race. So um, this, this issue uh, manifested in like interactions with like other, like just like other teenagers or they'd say something like, oh, that girl is really pretty. Like even you, Nadia, also you. It's like, but I thought you'd... I didn't imagine myself excluded, but then the, the people would keep reminding you, or oh, when it's time to buy school uniform and school uniforms don't fit, that's always, that was always very humiliating. If you want to go to like an amusement park and then they like try to close the ride and then the ride doesn't close and you have to go all the way back down the stairs. Like there were so many crushing like moments where like you feel like the world is not designed for you or it's not designed with you in mind. And that makes you feel more pain and then you eat more. So yeah, those, yeah that was not a great time. Um, so at that time, I, t I still hadn't started to represent myself yet because I still held on to that belief that nobody wants to see me. Clearly I'm not on the TV, so nobody wants to see my experience. And it was like cartoons were an escape so how I describe drawing to somebody who doesn't draw, it's like it's a seismographic practice. So it's like you have something inside you and then your hand has to like record what you're feeling. So if I was drawing somebody who was thin and white with long red hair, in that drawing moment, I become that person. And then that becomes an escape. So when I draw, I would not want to re replicate what was already by default a painful experience. It was always trying to escape. So the characters still didn't look like me. Even if they were black, they were still thin. And the teachers would always be like, but why? Like, why are you not? And I'm like, you see the world. Like, don't act like you don't know. When I would draw, I would wish that I was the character I was drawing. That's part of the thrill of animation practice. Um, they say that you're actors with pencils. So for that moment, you have to learn, a, when you're drawing a character, you imagine how they move. You imagine like the, their weight, um, like, like their physics of their walk, where's their center of gravity. So it's like a fun ex opportunity to like body snatch somebody else and imagine what it's like to move in the world as them. Yeah, so that I think was part of why my drawing still didn't look like me or people who look like me because I don't think I was ready to even embody myself yet. Like that process had not yet done its first wave. So after high school, um, yes, I know I wanted to do art. Um, I went to a school that had a fantastic arts program, which I'm really grateful for. I went to uh, Brookhouse and I went to do my foundation in the UK after that. And at the point, I knew I wanted to do animation, 
but I also had to learn fundamentals of art, at, of draftsmanship at a certain level. So I went there and I was exposed to many more practices. It was really informative. And then I came back to Kenya and I was like, okay, I think I know what I want to do, but now I needed to now apply for a degree program. And at that point, I wanted to apply to Savannah College of Art and Design in Atlanta. But one day we ran into like um, my mom's friend. She's a dancer called Suki. And she was like, oh, you're into animation. You should meet this guy called Martin, who ran uh, animation school in Parklands called Mank and Tank. So I went there, I showed him my work because the enrollment period was still far. So it's like, you can't sit here and do nothing. So I went there. He was like, yeah, Savannah is like, it's cute. But if you're serious, you need to go to Sheridan. And I'm like, what is Sheridan? He was like, girl. So he like just gave me links. And it's like one of the um, best like classical animation programs in the world. Like it's, they normally fight with Arts, which is the school that like Walt Disney like created to teach animation. So I was like, oh, I want to go there so bad. So I applied, um, I got into their, their fundamentals program. And then when I got into that fundamentals program, I applied again and then I got into their bachelor of animation program. And I was there for, I think a total of five years or four and a half. And it was glorious. It was so good. It was so hard. <laughs> Because these are the best, like, so like each class had like 25 people in it and they've come from all over and each of them was the kid who used to draw monocots and die cuts in class. So all of you are like, I'm not special anymore or no, <laughs> like, who am I? <laughs> so like there it comes into play where you have to really question is like drawing who I am or is it what I do? Yeah, it was a, it was a wild ride, learned a lot. I was crushed, like rebuilt. And yeah, I think it's made me the draftsman I am today. So when I say crushed, I meant I've, I've learned slowly that art practice is destructive by nature. Like you can't go in with the same tricks that worked last week. You can't. Like you have to always be vulnerable and exposed, which is not what I thought it was. I thought it's like you learn like a set of rules which you can like deploy at will, pew, pew, and like win all the things. <laughs> That's what I was hoping was at the end of the tunnel. But what I, one of the things I really remember my teacher, one of my animation teachers called David Canal or, D, or DQ, he said like, it doesn't matter how long you do this, that you will always shed a brick. Like you will always, there will always be, you look at the paper and you're like, oh no, I can't draw, 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 I can't draw. And you have to like fight. You have to fight that voice every single day. And that is the work. That's not actually a bad day. That is just like what happens. And I was like, man, I thought it would be easy. So that was crushing. That was crushing. Because I thought, yeah, that there was a, a point of like complete acquisition of all the skills. But like what I'm learning to relish actually is that that point actually never comes. That you have, the, the trick is staying teachable and staying open to always growing. Yeah, so at this point in uni, now it was like a new phase or a new chapter where I had managed to lose like uh, some weight, a lot of weight actually. So I was like, yeah, finally my life can start. <laughs> like, um, I'm ready for the world. And then the most heartbreaking thing happened where people do not see me any differently. Like I was waiting for people to be like, oh, finally you've arrived here. Have this gold. Like have these boys, like, they're, like, or something. But no, like, people would still have a reason to block you, or they'd still, you're still foreign, you're still not quite, there's still many other opportunities to not be seen clearly. 
And that for me was really heartbreaking because I honestly thought that if I could answer this weight question, that all the questions would be answered. Which is, I think, a theme in life that I'm just recognizing. That I keep thinking, okay, if I get this, then I'll be fine. But the truth is, no. There will always be something. So at that point, even with like this new body, and as I was learning to like move as her and be read anew as her, I, I also learned that she's still fallible. That was really disappointing. Um, that she still has limits, like you can't not sleep, which is something that animators love to do. And that she's still like, she has always been beautiful and worthy. Like at first I thought I had to like really get rid of that version because people kept telling me just change, 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 change this thing. And then maybe we'll like accept you. I thought, I say I changed it, but, and I tried to like push her away, but I learned that the truth is that all of them are still me and all of them are still valuable, inherently valuable. And there's nothing I can perform or do that can add or remove value from that. And I think that was an arc that it started then. It started in uni and then slowly like, I, there's still of course days where I have to like remind myself, but I think that's the season I'm in now of like holding that or like sitting in that. So I first started working on projects when I was still in Nairobi, um, before I went to Sheridan. Um, so I'd started working on Shujaz. So yeah, I was 19 and Dan Muli, who's an amazing illustrator and musician, uh, he used to be in just a band. He was showing this um, researcher called Paula Callas around Nairobi, just showing where kids draw, like the artists. And she was, cause she was doing research for her PhD in African animation. So they came to Mank and Tank and they saw me drawing. And then Dan was like, oh, hey, how are you doing? He's like, oh, these are good. And I was like, oh, thanks. And he's like, we are having auditions at the Go Down Art Center for this new project, which is comics and kids. It should be a lot of fun. Would you like to come through? And I was like, yes, I'd love that. So I went to the Go Down and there were like 20 artists in the room and they had character briefs on the wall. And they just asked us one by one, like, okay, draw a girl who's 17 who lives in Kibera and she has a younger brother sells Sukubawiki to like pay for like extra stuff for the house. And then we drew and drew and then like the well-told story team would like whittle down the drawings to who they thought were the strongest artists. And at the end of the day, we started off 20 and we ended up four. There was me, uh, there was Eric Muthoga, who sadly um, passed away recently. There was Dan Muli, and there was Movin Were. So we were like the starting lineup artists for Shujaz. So we used to meet up at Rob Burnett's home. He had like a shed and that's where it all started. And yeah, we just like draw all day and we hadn't even talked about money. We hadn't talked about any of that. I just could not believe that the job was possible. So. I was having so much fun, actually. I think one of the most gratifying moments um, I've experienced in my career so far, I was in Ajav going home. We used to live in Kilalesha. And you know, like the way they put the newspaper at the front. There was an issue of Shujaz there. And then some guy, the guy sitting next to me was like reading. He was reading. And then he just kind of, like he just like chuckled. And I was like, ah! <laughs> like that is the one, <laughs> the feeling. <laughs> like, and since then, because of Shujaz specifically, I have had so many glorious career moments. Like, um, the project won two um, international Emmys. Um, it has a massive print run and reaches so many people. But that laugh, that laugh, I was just like, girl, if you can achieve something in my mind, I do it. And then they give you, then even you get, I was like, no, it's too good. So that for me, I think I always try to 
to not not like grasp it, but just try to cultivate that that desire or that intention or that motivation behind the work that I do. Um, so Shujaz was an amazing start, um, and since then I've been connected to many other projects which have, yeah, which I care about and enjoy working on. Another one which I started the after Shujaz was um, the Nia project, which is something I started when I was still at Shujaz. And it was a similar model, but targeting girls specifically and topics around reproductive health. So I started working on that in one of my final years at, in my final years at uni, and that was really challenging and a lot of fun, because again I thought I'd learned. Okay, I'm a woman. I am black. I am new. Like I'm six one. Like I will take up all the space. I thought I, I thought I was like okay. I'm wrapping around all these things, and when we were touring to get like ideas of how girls wanted to see themselves represented, I, I learned that I carried another bias, which was the class bias. So for me, being a girl means X, Y, Z, your bedroom, you have a room one, it looks like this, you do this, you eat this. So we'd go touring with these comics and then all character designs. And the girls would be like, mm, <laughs> cannot relate, get it out of here. And I'm like, <gasps> But my work and my craftsmanship. And they were like, we don't care. I don't see myself in it. Please remove it. And yeah, teenage girls can be, they can be vicious. My old writing partner, Anne, like one of my favorite quotes from her, it's like, she says, there's no gaze more critical and more like unrelenting than that of a 13-year-old girl. She's like, I don't like it. Sorry. Sorry to you. Sorry to how much time you spent. Don't care. <laughs> so... That was crushing because you learned like it's not just about representing yourself. It's about service and it's about like the work is alive when the reader sees it too. Um, like like the, the matatu laugh thing. So then it's like, okay, I have to learn. You can't assume even if you have your idea of what a character should be, you have to research, you have to ask questions and you have to have an iterative process. So that's something that Zana gave me. It's ironic, like Zana Africa, the company that ran the NIA project, really equipped me, yeah, with the tools I need to have like a really healthy, uh, sustainable career and to always have, to, ha to have authenticity be something that you cultivate, that you don't assume you automatically get. Then after I left Zana, I started my own studio and actually, yeah, I started a studio with a friend that did not work. And then I started my own studio and I was just trying to like get small jobs here and there. Ultimately, I was able to go to ANSI, which is like the largest animation festival in the world to pitch my project, it's called Uzi. So I'd gone there to pitch this thing and it won. It won the Cyclic Prize, which was an opportunity to go work on the film in France. So I was like, this is gonna be fire. And then COVID, <laughs> and then COVID came. And then everything was like, everything shut down, but Strangely enough, like the COVID moment actually is what has opened up my studio the most and has seen the most rapid growth because a lot of the North American studios I'd wanted to do work for like, um, like Netflix or even Sony and others, which I can't yet name. Before when I'd apply, they'd be like, first of all, we don't have policy to hire you. Second, we don't know what to do with your work. It's nice, but we are not doing anything like this. Sorry, sorry to you. Um, but, uh, but then they began to recruit really aggressively because they couldn't shoot live action anymore. So Netflix had to really pivot as an animation first company. 
So I saw like the recruiters like asking people to join their Ask Me Anythings on Instagram. And I was like, these people don't need us. They really need us. So let me see if I can get into this door. One of the things I did to, to, stick, to stick out was to do caricatures of all the panelists. Then I put it on my Instagram. Then I tagged them. Then they could see me. They could see that I can draw fast, that I can draw well. Nee, 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 nee. That still wasn't enough. What actually got me my first job at Netflix, it was a friend from school. He's this amazing creator called Jima Gariba. He actually debuted his own show yesterday and like Timberland did the soundtrack. It's wild. And he was talking to the director of the film and he said he was looking for a black girl to help him design like black girls. And he's like, I know the one. <laughs> I know the person for you. And then he slid into my DM on Twitter. I don't even check Twitter. And then I opened it and he's like, hi, I'm X. I'm working on X. Do you want to work on my movie? And I was like, say less. Yes, yes, please. And then that's how it started. I think the thing I've learned is always to move with like generosity, not in like a manipulative, like puppet master way, but to genuinely be open to people because you never know who's going to open that door for you. Yeah, so I started working there. I was designing characters for a feature. Had a fantastic time. One of my best professional experiences to date was there. I did some work for Facebook as well last year, illustrating a safety guide for queer users. Yeah, there's just some others that I can't say. I can't say yet, but things are good. Things are really good. So I've just um, recently came back from Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso for Fespaco, where a film I had art directed called The Legend of Luanda Magere was premiering or it was showing, it was screening there. And working on that film was an amazing experience because at the time, like I was looking for a production to work on and Kwame Nyong'o, the director, asked me to go on to do backgrounds. So I was like, yes, of course I'll do this. And we actually went to uh, Awasi. We went um, and we were taken around like the homestead and we were able to see the site where all the folklore and originated from which is my, one of my favorite parts of the process. So we got to speak to people who claim lineage and like how they'd phrase the story and how they describe the skin or how they said Luanda did this. Or, no, 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 no. You forgot that you also went here and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That familiarity and that connection, especially as Alua, was so, it was so fun and it was very nourishing. It was really, really great. And after we finished working on the film, we went back to Awasi to like premiere it and that was like the day of patient zero. So we were driving there on Friday, the 13th of March. And then there's an announcement, like we're closing all the borders. And then you're just like, what do we do? It was very dramatic. Do we turn back? And then Kwame's like, no, we've gone too far. <laughs> like, and we had to like keep going. So we did. And that was like one of like the best trips because we knew it, everything was going to close up soon after. And, but we were able to show it to kids and they really responded and they really laughed and they really saw themselves. And that was great. I was like, I can actually do this. Like, this is actually happening. That project like has opened up so many doors and it actually taught me so many lessons about how to lead because Kwame is one of the most generous directors of, or people I've actually ever experienced. He's so warm, so consistent and so relaxed at the same time. Like he's like really cool. I actually don't think about being the only woman in these pieces often until somebody mentions it. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, so far I mostly am. Like, unless it's the production side, because production is mostly run by women, I've noticed. Like, the schedules and, like, making sure everything is running on track. It's mostly women. 
But yeah, creatively on the continent so far, yeah, I find I'm mostly, I'm usually the only woman in the room. And I think it's, I think it's because it's, it's part of a, a larger pattern of being the other. So I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the only one. Okay, okay, it's cool. We know how to do this. We know how to navigate spaces like this. Unless it's at Zana where it was a company which was like feminist in its design and hired mostly women. But other than that, like largely, yeah, I am the only woman. And it's, it's great and exciting because that's actually working in my favor at the moment. Yeah, I think it would be, it, I think it would be dishonest to say that I don't recognize that that specific politic is also opening up doors for me. It really is because people are really keen to represent the experiences of women on screen, not just in live, of black women on screen, not just like in live action, but in animation. So it means people like me will become more sought after instead of before where they're like, we don't know what to do with you. Like, sorry. Being the only woman in the room is also mostly, it's mostly fun. It's because people are really generous and and I guess open, as long as you deliver the draftsmanship. Like, have you drawn it or have you not drawn it? Like, I find that the gaps or issues I have to deal with are mostly, like, issues of, like, professional conduct. Like, if I have a professional weakness, people will tell you, stop it, please do your work. And you'll be like, I will, I'm sorry. But being a woman is not, yeah, it's not the core question in the studio environment, at least not that I've experienced. So when it comes to the question of identity in my art, I find that I've actually neglected it a little bit because when you're doing service work for somebody, ultimately it's still their vision. So even if you bring like, what if it's like this? What if it's like this? Ultimately like, but me, I said it's like this. So, and that's when I learned a thing about me is that I'm, maybe I'm not good at taking direction because I want to be the director. But yeah, I've actually neglected it recently because I'm on some projects where the experiences are not mine. They're adjacent to me and they're things that I care about but it's not me. And I feel like that question, it's like a really urgent call to why I think I feel like I'm beginning to exhaust. I'm getting exhausted because it's all about other people. It's not the balance of it being the safe space, not who I am, but my core practice. Like I think I've neglected that crucial part that it has to be about saying what you want to say which I have not been doing because I'm trying to make these coins. Ultimately, the design for my animation studio was to have it be that doing service work for multinational studios would fund original projects. But right now I haven't cracked the time and energy balance to make sure that it's actually being funneled into work that is mine. So that's something I need to revisit like really urgently because I've been feeling it atrophy and I've been feeling, yeah, I've been feeling the effects of not honoring that part of the practice. So when I need to refuel and need to get like ground myself, like spirituality is extremely important. So for me, Christ is in value, like the center because in my experiences with faith, the questions on identity are things or the way I've the ways I've learned to answer them are lessons I've learned through my faith practice. Like ideas that it matters how you are made and how you look. Also, you are inherently valuable. Nothing can ever add or remove from who you are, who I have made you to be. And like that intimacy and that safety, that that's a very leveling thing for me. It gives me a lot of peace. So if ever I'm like, 
oh, like this has happened and uh, I drew bad drawings today or I didn't deliver this today or I feel like I'm not performing at my ultimate, like a Nadia, like I'm not Nadia-ing as I should, but ultimately I'm still, like I'm still me and nothing can ever add or remove. Like forgiveness and healing are available in like abundance. So I'm like, okay, let's go back to that. Like I find that the thing at the center. There's many other ways that light shines out like in other facets of my life, like with my beautiful family, my incredible friendships. But personally, like by myself, that's I think where it starts. Catch more African stories in the next episode of Legally Clueless. That was such an awesome story and and honestly conversation because I feel like we learned not only her progression through her career as an artist and getting into animation but also just her evolution as a human as a woman as an African woman it's it was so mind-blowing to listen to and I remember when we recorded this I was just like I can't wait to share this on the audio episodes I can't so Nadia actually shared part of the story on season two of our video series so if you head over to our YouTube channel you can watch a condensed version of of this story but I think there was so much I identified with in the story from when she talked about her insecurities with her body and when she draw, you know, the slimmer woman or the slimmer cartoons or whatever, it's like she could be that person. For a moment, that was so intriguing to me. It was, it was quite something. Ooh, when she talked about fighting the, I can't do this. Ooh, I face that all the time. Let me tell you, there's so many times I even questioned this podcast. With all that it's achieved and knowing that, with me enjoying giving you these episodes every week and like how we've grown with our video series, the tour series, all of that. I still have days where I'm just like, this is nonsense. What you're doing isn't even that good enough. Just stop. Like, stop. Nobody cares. Nobody cares, Adele. Turn off that mic. It's overcoming that and still turning on the mic and recording that you have to do. Ugh, those moments are so challenging. I thought it was quite insightful when she talked about racism and the smaller questions. I've never, ever thought about it in that light. So I was like, huh, intriguing. Ooh, this is something that I absolutely love. And I was so blown away when she said her dad said this thing because it's something that I think and say all the time, which is there's a huge difference between who I am and what I do. And I had to unpack that especially when I left KISS and stopped being a radio presenter and many people thought that's who I am but that was what I I did <laughs> big difference so I, I loved that and I also love just the ending extending grace to yourself just being graceful with yourself in the moments where you feel like you can't do this or you feel less than just like being very kind and graceful with yourself I don't always manage to do that because I think like we're our own greatest critics but yeah let's exercise that grace muscle Sindhya I'm so thankful that you listened to the podcast to the very end remember ah please attend the book launch if you can. It would be so great to, to see you there and to meet you. Just go to ticketsasa.com and in the events, you can search our book in silence book launch or you can just check out the show notes. There's a link there. Please cross your fingers for me for this Dubai performance. I feel so ill-prepared, but I'm going to remedy that on that flight. In fact, I'm going to record my poem now 
load it on my phone so that I can be listening to it over and over on the flight. But still, cross your fingers, send me good energy, light candles for me. And then remember that if you are in Kenya, you can catch this podcast on Trace Radio every Monday and Wednesday at 12 noon and 11 p.m. Fridays at 12 noon. Just go to traceradio.co.ke for a list of the frequencies on how you can catch um, and stream Trace. Yeah, boy, time for me to end this here so that I can pack my bags. <laughs> I don't know why I sang that. Please. Don't judge me, I'm just tired. I'm just tired. It's like heading to 1 a.m. Yeah, I wish you all the love and all the grace that the universe has to offer you. That's it for this episode of Legally Clueless. You can share this podcast with your friends. You can keep it for yourself. I'm not judging. Just make sure you're here next week for the next episode.